let's say I said, you know, I expect that I can draw 75 people and then you get 40 covers. How do you deal with that? What I do as a presenter, when anybody comes and tells me that, I immediately cut it in half. I'm like, okay, we're going to have 40 people here. Welcome to Jazz Office Hours. I'm your host, Will Chernoff, here with Corey Weeds. Corey, how's your summer been? Summer's going well, my friend. Summer is going very well. August, better than July because I've had some time off, but uh, overall, it's been good. It's been good, a good summer. I'm still trying to learn about this. What's the best month to take a vacation in this community? Is it July? Is it post-Jazz Fest? Is that the time? Um. Well, I don't really think of it musically speaking. I think about it family, you know, because I have a young family. So, I mean, we're only, you know, because of school and my wife is a school teacher, you know, summer is really the only time. And I mean, technically things do slow down in the summer. I mean, you would never know it by going to Frankie's busy there every night. But I remember yeah. in the old, in the old cellar days, you know, it was, it, it was, are we going to go out of business this summer? Or are we going to survive? So summer's just always been the way, you know, where we, we go around our kids' schedule. So, I mean, obviously you don't want to be holidaying during jazz festival, uh, assuming that jazz festival is going to be a regular thing moving forward. Um, so summer's the best. And I, July, um, July is still pretty busy. Our kids go to summer school and do baseball and all their activities. And then August really slows down. So yeah, baseball season. It's fun to see you posting about that. You really get into it. <laughs> I do get into it. I love it more than anything else in the whole world. It's really, it's really fun for me. Nice. Nice. Well, you did allude to how busy it's getting at Frankie's today. We are going to go further into the gig booking side of things because on sure. episode one, we talked a lot about album production, and we also got into booking gigs too, and we even had a nice little highlight moment that I put out while we were on our vacations about how you want to get known for what you do. And so there's more to be said on that. Got a couple more questions on the subject, so you can see where we go about booking gigs. So the first thing I have for us to look at, this is a bit of a paraphrase of something that somebody asked me in person, and I thought was really interesting, so I don't have the exact quote from them, but here is the gist of it. I'm a young student who has only played a few gigs. I'm afraid if I try and book a gig now at like the second floor gas town or venue like that, if it goes badly, people will think I played really badly and I'll never get hired again. Is this the case or how do I deal with that? Well, I guess the, the, it's not a tough question to answer, and it is a tough question to answer because yeah. I have a, I have a response question, and that is what constitutes a gig going badly? Exactly. Um, it, 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 so I can address it in two ways, I guess. There are two ways it could go badly. You could perform badly, um, or the audience, uh, the attendance could be very poor. Hmm. Um, you know, I would say that as a musician myself, uh, of course, we are still all insecure and self-conscious about our own playing and how we sound. Um, but if you're gonna if you're gonna go anywhere in this industry and be a performer, you need to try to get a handle on that very quickly. Was I ready the first time I got a paid gig? Probably not. Yeah. But sometimes I step on the stage now for a certain gig and I don't feel like I'm ready. So that, I don't know that that feeling ever leaves, but you, you grow in confidence and, and feel better about yourself. And, and, um, you know, so as long as you prepare, as long as you practice, as long as you prepare, as long as you've rehearsed, uh, I mean, you know, you got to leave the rest to, to, you, you got to see how it goes. Um, and hopefully if you don't perform, I mean, you know, unless you get up there and completely lay an egg, first of all, nobody's going to know whether you had a good night or a bad night. You're there to entertain, and there's more to entertaining somebody than, you know, playing the hippest lick on this 2-5 or making sure you did some cool chord substitutions. The reality of that is nobody knows about that except your band and maybe some musicians who might be in the crowd. But even that, you know, when I go, when I go, with my wife, for example, to Frankie's, I just want to be entertained. 
I, I just want to go for a night of entertainment. And it's sometimes it's not always the best music or my favorite music, but I feel like I was entertained. I feel like the band was prepared. I feel like they were rehearsed. I feel like they did a good job of engaging with the audience. And, and so there's a lot of things that go into that. So I think you need to lose the, what if it goes poorly? If you're going to be in this business at some point, you're going to need to get out and you're going to need to gig in front of people. And realistically, you're going to fall on your face. I did several times. Oh, and yeah. I've, I've done it several times as an adult, professional, respected musician. Sometimes it just happens. And I don't think there's really, you just try to mitigate that as much as you can. And you do that by being prepared, um, you know, taking care and selecting your bandmates, taking care and selecting your material, showing up to the venue early and getting familiar with the sound, like taking time to make sure that all those things are cool. That's how you don't fall on your face that way. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really jumps out to me hearing about the the fear aspect of it is that it's totally something that never leaves you. And when you encounter that for the first time as a younger performer, it feels like this crushing thing that how am I going to deal with this? But really, yeah, it's something that you come yeah. to terms with because it doesn't go away. You're always no. going to be working on new stuff and you're going to have high expectations of yourself. But the entertainment aspect of it that's not what other people are there for. They're not there to see whether or not you meet all your own expectations. So even exactly. though you're going to have that tension within yourself, like eventually you learn to to see past it in a way. But yeah, you don't ever like eliminate it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. We are talking before we started recording. Um, I got called three days ago, two days ago. I, I took all of August off. I don't have any gigs. And I got called from Julian Burkowski, who's a young trumpet player from here in Vancouver, who I just, I think is a very special musician. This, this uh, man, this young man is playing incredibly well, and he's incredibly mature as a player. Yeah. And Campbell Riga couldn't make the gig. He hurt his wrist or something happened. He had to sub out. I can't tell you the amount of men mental anguish that I went through before I actually said yes to that gig for a myriad of reasons. One you know, Julian's young and really burning. And number two, the club's going to be packed. Number three, I don't know how much time I'm going to have to look at the music. And, and, and just a myriad of reasons why I would say no to this gig. And then I had to stop myself and go like, Corey, man, you're not a grade 11 high school student. Like you're being asked by this young kid who, you know, who, who couched the email by saying like, it would really mean a lot to me. You've helped me out a lot. And you're just going to play music. It's Jody Prosnick, who I know uh, for many years, and Todd Stewart and Noah French, know some young guys. So instead of looking at it like being insecure, I was looking at it as an opportunity. Like, just I'm going to just go up and do my thing. I don't have control over whether they like it or whether they don't like it, whether the audience likes it or doesn't like it. Somebody might be disappointed that it's not Campbell and it's me. I don't have any control over that. All I can do is just go up and do the best that I can do, and that's what it's going to be. Yeah. But it's taken me a long time to get to that. And I still work at it. I think you know too. You're a musician. This is a constant battle that we have with ourselves. And it's a battle that will go on for the rest of our lives. You know, and as soon as you start letting it mess with you, and as soon as you start letting it control you, then you're in trouble. Um, you know, from the audience side, you know, that's a tough one. You don't just wake up one morning and have an audience. You have to work at it. I've worked at it for 25 years. You have to build an audience. And so what I do is I make sure that all my family knows where I'm playing and when I'm playing, all my friends, all the people that I interact with every day at the kids' school or the kids' baseball practice or a swimming practice or volleyball practice. Hey, what do you do? I'm a musician. Oh, you should come down, check it out. You like jazz? Come down and, you know, here's my card. You know, like it's a, it, you got to start and you have to maintain and you have to continue to do that. So again, don't set your expectations unrealistically. I think, I think we talked a lot about that last time we spoke. Yeah. Is setting your expectations realistically. The second floor gas town is... You know, well, if you put 40 people in there, they'll probably be quite happy. So what what's the best thing you can do to get the most people there? And, and you know, and if you don't do well, it's going to be a little bit harder to get the gig next time. But, you know, if you continue to build, you continue, continue to show that you're 
active on social media and you're out there engaging with people and you're doing some stuff, then that's usually enough. I'm forced with that decision, you know, every week, every time I put a booking into my calendar, I'm like, okay, you know, this one is going to be tough, but what can we do? You know, how can we work together? Um, what are you going to do? Here's what I can do. You know, so it's a constant back and forth. You know, I don't want to speak for second floor gas town, but I think that they also realize that their pay structure is such and their venue size is such that they're sort of locked into a certain thing in terms of what they can book. Like it's going to be trios. It's going to be trios and like, you know, uh, yeah. And, and I'm not going to go down there for, and I, again, this is not, this is, and I love the second floor Gaston. I haven't played there in a long time and it's great, but you know, I'm probably not going to go down for a hundred dollars, you know, um, and pay 20 for parking. And it's just, I, I don't, I'd rather give that gig to a younger person, somebody that needs it. So they're sort of locked into a certain thing. Whereas at Frankie's, I have more leeway in terms of being able to take a risk. We're charging a $16 cover or a $20 cover. So I can take, we're, we're right in the middle of downtown. So I can take a little bit, we're more established, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, my point is that I think that the second floor gas town probably has realistic, expectations as well. Yeah. If they didn't, if they didn't, they wouldn't be in business anymore. So again, I can't speak for them, but you get my point. Totally. Yeah. And we talked about how making an album is all about expectations, but you know, same kind of considerations here. Um, even like a tyrant studios kind of thing, you know, yeah, they sell tickets. So you could do really well if you draw a lot of people there, but that's a very small room. So, you know, that's not going to be a huge amount of, of dollars. So yeah, they, they would probably have reasonable expectations for what you can do too we talked about the fear side of like you're playing like you're afraid that you're Mm going to play badly and our conclusion was kind of that oh this is a lifelong thing that performers deal with and and you'll you'll grow into that feeling and figure out how to you know get right get beyond it but you also mentioned the the thing about the draw and what happens if it sounds like you set an expectation for what your draw is going to be and then you don't not only do you not meet it but if you don't come close to it depending on how high that expectation is is that the real danger i think you should always concentrate on the music first forget the audience because you have help there do you know what i mean so like you don't you don't have any help in how you perform like how you perform is how much you practiced how prepared you are nobody can help you with that only you can control that the venue, whether it be Water Street or Frankie's or any other venue, have websites, they have mailing lists, they have social media accounts, as do you. You can, you know, you can get some help there. So I don't think that musicians should get too caught up on the attendance side of things. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I don't think they. Sh- I don't think you should get too caught up on it defining your career. I think you should get caught up in it is how can I do the best for me and the venue that I'm playing at so I continue to have a a, a successful relationship with them, of course. But I don't think you should let it define your career any more than that gig. If you if that does that make sense? Yeah. So like if you have a big miss on attendance, like let's say I tried to book a gig with you at Frankie's for the main show. And I'll talk about actually some of the gigs I'm actually working on booking right now that might be relevant to the conversation later if if that ends up being relevant. But let's say I wanted to perform with you in early December or something uh, because I'm going to be putting out new music of my own this fall. And let's say I said, you know, I expect that I can draw 75 people, right? Right. And then you get 40 covers. Yeah. Is that a catastrophe for me? I mean, obviously that's not great, but like you talked about not defining your career. You don't want that to think that, oh, I'm done. I can't do anything anymore. But like, how do you deal with that if that happens? Well, I, what I do as a presenter, when anybody comes and tells me that I immediately cut it in half. So if somebody comes to me and says, oh, I can fill this place. No problem. I'm like, okay, we're going to have 40 people here. (laughs) <laughs> that way I'm like okay for, if I've given them the gig with the understanding that they're going to get that many I've given them the gig with the understanding it's going to be 40 people interesting you know so I would never make promises like that 
I don't think that it's realistic for anybody who's never played a venue to come and tell me that they're going to fit 85 people in there. And this is too hard to get into in this episode. I mean, this would be like a three-part series, but I have made some mistakes. I have made some mistakes where I have underestimated the draw of some people. Without question, I've done it locally. Underestimated? I've been like, oh yeah, you're going to bring 40 people and they bring 85. I'm like, oh, "Oh, okay. So yes, I have. I, I, I pride myself on knowing pretty much exactly how many people are going to come. But there are other factors. There is, is it the Grammy Awards? Are the BC Lions playing? Are the Whitecaps playing? Are the Canucks playing? Is it the last episode of Friends? You know, that was a thing for us at the cellar, if you can believe it. The last episode of Friends. (laughs) Uh, are Are the Canucks in the playoffs? Is the weather nice? Is it, are we over with COVID? Like, it's not always just about... It, it can be about so many things, and that's why when somebody doesn't do well, I'm not I, I'm not emailing. Oh, you didn't do very well. Like, okay, let's look at the factors. Okay, that didn't do very well. What can we do next time? If somebody to, doesn't to do well once, if they severely underperform repeatedly, then maybe that's you know you got to remember that. But once, right? Like almost anything can happen, right? Depending on what else is happening out there in the real world. Yeah. I would ponder it. I would do everything you can to make sure that your gig is busy, but I wouldn't define, I wouldn't let it define your career if it doesn't go so well the first time out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. And that's really interesting to know how you, um, kind of price in the, the draw estimate from the performer, right? Because that's, that's interesting for somebody to know that the, the promoter might be doing that, that they might be kind of, expect they might be kind of dropping uh from where you say that you might go now not every promoter is going to do that there might be some people out there who will hold you to um what you say and that you know you'll you'll have to deal with that if you end up booking with somebody like that so not everybody's going to have that attitude but it's good to know that you and probably a lot of other people are already kind of pricing that in when when the performer comes to you and you know i don't quite mean this the way it sounds forget i'm not stupid either like i have a pretty I have a pretty firm grasp on what's happening in this city. You've and, done thousands of gigs like that. So, yeah, and yeah. who it's happening with. Now, again, I don't always, uh, you know, I don't always hit the mark, but I would say eight times out of 10, you know, I'm pretty much, you know, right on. And I You can be within a margin of, you know, 10% or whatever, either way, yep. you can you can probably guess quite well almost yeah. every time. But if you do well the first time and you put effort in and you show your effort, um, you know, the first time, then, I mean, Will, it can be so many things. It could be maybe that venue wasn't quite right for you or, I mean, there's so many factors. So as a presenter, I never just go, okay, that didn't do well. You're a write-off. I'm like, okay, you didn't do well. I got to be careful the next time I book you. Hmm. Um, and I got to place you properly, which for me means a whole bunch of different things, but, you know, hopefully, you know, I probably take a lot of heat behind the scenes from some people and how I do things, which is fine, but I'm pretty open and I'm pretty, I look at things pretty objectively and I look at things pretty fairly and I I try to come up with a solution because I do feel like even though I run a for-profit enterprise at Frankie's, I do feel a responsibility to be as inclusionary as possible, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line, you know, let's put it that way. So there is something real there talking about different kinds of fear that people experience. There is, it's real that if you, you know, severely, uh, underperform something that you said, if you, if you gave a certain word to somebody, and if, especially if you do that multiple times, that there's, there's going to be some response by you but i mean i guess the conclusion is uh it's not going to be the end the end like it's going to be a challenge and like you said you're going to have to think about how to place that person if they come to you again it doesn't mean that you're writing them off forever especially if you only do it once because like anything can happen but yeah there's going to be considerations made if if that happens but it doesn't doesn't mean that it's over. <laughs> Does not mean that it's over. So, yeah. you know, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in clubs in New York or other places with some of the greatest musicians in the world, and there's four or five people there. So, you know, it's just the luck of the draw sometimes. Sometimes you didn't do enough. Sometimes they didn't do enough. Sometimes it's just the way it works out, you know. So, yeah. But, you know, I do suggest that you, as a young musician starting out, you use everything that's available to you. 
um, in -hmm. terms of trying to get people out. Yeah. I was talking to um, a friend, a new friend and a reader of Rhythm Changes who is kind of a Gen X person, probably close to yourself and kind of grew up in the rock scene a little bit. It's not really a jazz guy, but enjoys reading some of my stuff. And uh, I was explaining to him uh, how my band booked stuff when we toured around BC and when we played at folk festivals and the gigs we would book around the festivals. And when I explained it from first principles, I felt really lucky that I grew up in the era that I did because I was explaining it to him like this. Imagine if you had this in the early 90s. Like imagine if you had this 25 years before we had it. We could go online. We could search up and find, identify hundreds of venues that are good fits for our music around the country and even within our own province. We could find the contact information by email. We wouldn't even have to call, although we could if we found their phone number, of the people who booked the music there. And we could email them and tell them, hey, we've never performed in your city before, but it's 2017, it's 2018. We know how to use Facebook ads. We know roughly how well they work. And we can use Facebook ads and pretty much project for you that we can get 75 people out to this show in this town by showing them our stuff and maybe getting them to sign up to our mailing list so then they have more likelihood of us reaching out at the right time and coming out but like even if we've never been to a city we can like make an audience there by spending like 40 or 50 bucks yeah and the people who were booking these gigs you know they were often quite a bit older than you and so at that point you know like they know facebook which is good because they know what facebook is so we can talk about it but they don't yeah. know how to do the ads or anything like that so that part of it is kind of wizardry to them and they're impressed by that and they're interested in booking us and we were able to convert most of those you know like we did have some flops for sure and like you said when we flopped on that um to be honest the the promoters they actually weren't that mad at us like they've they've seen that happen who knows how many times right they were they were just happy that we came in there and we were willing to try stuff but to somebody who was trying to do a diy indie rock band in the early 90s like they would have killed to have access to that. So oh, I felt I know. really it's grateful. So cra- it's so crazy now. Yeah, it's so crazy to think how it worked back then. It's funny because then I thought about it and I realized that we were making that work on a shoestring. We weren't making tons of money off it, but we were able to tour without losing money. Right. We were able to make a little bit of money and pay ourselves first out of the tours by running that system. But now, you know, if we were trying to do that today, only five years later gas is two or three times as much yeah facebook ads are five times as much in some cases as what we were paying for them so we wouldn't even be able to do it now we were just able to do it five years ago yeah it's crazy but i'm interested to see that's from a touring perspective like going to new cities and new venues that you've never played at before and how to do that but locally i'm trying to book some gigs small i'm focusing on the smallest of the jazz venues right now And then if those go well, then I can proceed to the other ones. But I'm trying to book some gigs for this fall. And I'm thinking about, yeah, sure, the ads are too expensive that with the ads and the gas, uh, if we were touring with Early Spirit today, it wouldn't work. But can I use that to underwrite kind of how many people I expect to bring out to my local gigs? Right. So, but I guess I'm wondering if you said that the presenters, you know, you have your own pretty good expectations of, how many people I could bring or somebody else could bring. Like when I send that email inquiry to the person who's booking the music, this is my own personal question that I'm just thinking of right now. Does it even matter? Do you want me to say how many people I expect to bring out? Or are you going to come up with that yourself? Yeah. So that's what I was thinking about as you were talking is that, you know, obviously post COVID or you could still argue we're not post COVID, we're in COVID. There's an air of desperation to everybody, venues, musicians, I mean, everybody. And it's understandable. It's not a criticism. It's just true. I don't, you know, first of all, I think you should let your music speak for yourself and speak for itself. And I don't, you know, look, I mean, if you come to me and I won't use you because, well, yeah, if you come to me and I listen to me. If I hate your music and I think it's very low quality, I, mean, I don't care if you can bring 80 people there. Yeah. Like, I'm not, no, it's not about that. So I, I, I would hope that most presenters are first peaked by the music they're listening to. 
Now, there's some presenters that are not. Like, they have their favorites, but they don't really care. They just want the club pack. So I, I don't think it's important to, maybe as a new artist, when you are approaching a venue, you say, hey, you know, I've never played there before. You know, I kind of have this, you know, again, in your case, you know, I have this website, Rhythm Changes. It's kind of gotten some some play. And I said, I, I think I can, you know, if you're willing to take a chance, like I think you could generate a, a, a crowd. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. Like I play at Herman's and it's a door gig. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you that I can bring a hundred people. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I, I still, when I play at Frankie's, I'm like, Oh, I don't know if it's going to be busy and it's packed every time. So, because then I think you're, it's a bit of a devaluation of yourself a little bit to say, I've got this band. I can bring 80 people. It's like, well, your band sucks. I don't care how many people or your band is burning like this is the kind of music that we want to promote here and we'll work with you to create an audience and we'll figure out a way you know so yeah yeah that's kind of what I've been, has been rolling around in my head since we started talking is why is everybody so so hell-bent on saying i can get this many people i can get this many people yeah it's it's part of this theme of of the fears that come up when when you're booking. That seems to be behind everything we've talked about so far. And it was cool that you mentioned that you're still afraid of nobody showing up when you play Frankie's because just like how you're always going to be thinking that you want to play better and and you're you'll have to reconcile, you know, the expectations of your playing. Yeah. That's also true for how many people for the other thing that we were talking about for how many people you think you can bring yeah. out like you're always going to be wondering about that too. You know, and I, w I won't use names because it, it it's not important. They're not local anyways, but I'm in the process of booking Jazz at the Bolt. And I'm struggling a little bit because I need a headliner. And what does a headliner mean? Well, a headliner means somebody that's going to sell 300 tickets. Well, who are you going to get here to sell 300 tickets? So I have some stuff that keeps falling through. Huh. This one person who I met in New York who I'm going to record, she's phenomenal. We had a party when we were in New York. She had the audience wrapped around her. It was, she was incredible. Nobody knows her here. I think I'm going to try to make her the headliner because wow. that's the kind of music that I want to put out. Now, we might have to do it as a double bill. We might have to have like a, a student or a college band maybe open up and kind of make it a concept kind of thing. But that's the kind of music that I want people to hear. And I'm willing to take a chance on that for that reason. So it becomes, of course, I'm thinking about people, but I'm like, maybe just maybe with the right promo, contacting the right people, making sure that the concept is understood, maybe that's going to sell 200 tickets. You know, I don't know. So again, stay, it's about the music. What music are you going to look? What I can tell you is that if a hundred people show up, the next time I bring this person, it'll be full because they're gonna she'll entertain the hell out of all of those people. So right. again, it goes back to make it the best show that you could possibly make it. And even if there are ten people in the audience and the owner of the booker sitting there going like, "Yeah, like wow, you know, okay, we didn't do so good, but holy crap, was that an enjoyable night?" You know. Interesting. Okay, so that I mean, first of all, uh, I think not to really comment on how good or how not good my band was but i think that did <laughs> save us on a lot of our poorly attended gigs because sure we always we we never really had a bad time hanging out with the promoters that we played at in the in the folk world and they seemed to like what we did and i'm pretty right. sure that's probably what some of them thought of us after we left some of those gigs like oh you know those guys came in they played for the first time they didn't get a lot of people out but they were nice they played well if they came back again they would do better Right. Uh, and I think that's really important. Again, not just for touring, but for local. As long as there's the assumption that you are on this scene and that you intend to stick around here and you're not just coming in one time only and then you're piecing out. If right. you're intending to be a person who's here, um, you're going to get the, uh, the grace of, okay, next time this person's music was great, they're going to do better. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Super important. Yeah, that was a good way to wrap that one up. Um, I th I like that. Uh, and that's, you know, that's going to be helpful for me as I, I think about how to go ahead here. Um, here's another one that's kind of related. Uh, in a local scene, 
is it possible to overplay to play too many gigs uh to this is kind of related to draw but to play too many gigs in a short period of time and then have not many people come to any of them because you're playing too often is this possible to what extent is this possible what do you think about that you know let me give you some examples and i'll use frankie's frankie's is a dedicated jazz club it's got a really nice piano it's got a really nice sound system the food is good it's a listening environment um it's right downtown it's transit accessible all of those things yeah that makes it a very appealing venue for in which for people to listen to and come and support the music. So do I have a radius clause? Well, I'm not thrilled when bands play at Pat's Pub, you know, and then come and play at Frankie's. Can you explain what a radius clause is for somebody who doesn't uh, know? Sure. A radius clause would be like most clubs or presenters or jazz festival have a radius clause that says something like you can't play within a hundred kilometers of our venue two weeks before the uh, one month before the show or two weeks after the show. Yeah. Like when we played a folk festival, they would say you can't play in the following cities for yeah. a month before or a month after. Exactly. Kind of so that's essentially a radius clause. And I think that sometimes those radius clause clauses can be very good things. Um, and I think they can also be not very good things on both sides. So again, Pat's pub is free. Pat's Pub was free. Was, yeah. Huh. Uh, rest, rest in peace, Pat's Pub. But it was free. So I'm like, well, you're playing there. You're doing a longer gig. You're not getting paid as much. It's free. And then you're coming to Frankie's a week later, and I'm paying you more. You're playing less, and I'm charging people $17.50. But the key difference here is let's compare Pat's Pub and Frankie's. And all we have to do is compare one thing, the area. So I, Pat's Pub is not a concern for me. People are, it's not a desirable area. And I'm not being, I'm not, uh, it's just, you know, it's the downtown east side and not a lot of people feel comfortable going there, whether that's right or wrong is fodder for another day. But I'm like, that's not a competitor for me. It's not, it's just not a competitor. Yeah. If you for think about the foot single traffic. Reason, for that single reason alone, it's not a, it's not a competitor but you start factoring on all this stuff. Okay, their piano is not as nice as ours. Their sound system is not as nice as ours. Their food is not as good as ours. It's not an, as nice of a place. And again, this is nothing against Pat's Pub. I love what Pat's has done, but you understand. Okay, second floor gas town. Okay, well, first of all, there's no tr there's no quartets there. Right. Guilt and Company. Is that a competitor? Not really, for all the same reasons I've already listed. Frankie's is interesting because we ha our competitors are the weather. Huh. BC plays Queen Elizabeth Theater. That's our competition. And I'm not saying that because I'm a Lego. Nobody can compete with us. It's not what I mean. Just nobody does what we do. Is Tyrant Studios a competitor? Maybe for a late night. But people go to Tyrant Studios and they go support Tim shows at the Lido because it's different. Because they want to hang out in a funky, non-traditional jazz venue, hip, hipster vibe. That's not what Frankie's is. Frankie's is a dinner club, period. And it's never going to be those other places. So I think that you have to be... Now, I'll tell you what is a problem. Shadbolt, Frankie's. Because nine times out of ten, people are going to pick Frankie's. So if I do a show at Shadbolt, it's not happening at Frankie's. So theaters and clubs are a little bit different. Because I think that people honestly prefer to go to Frankie's because it's a more intimate experience. Oh, so you're saying that like what you what is presented at the Shadbolt and what's presented at Frankie's is a similar vibe, so you wouldn't want to do it at the same time because they are going after the same? Or what 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 do you mean about that? I used to do it. I used to do we would do a big concert at Shadbolt on Sunday and then we would do Frankie's on Saturday with the same band. And it did okay, but I had to stop doing it because what was happening is the Shad Bolt was suffering. You also booked people for Jazz at the Bolt and then they played Frankie's while they came to town too? We did that once last year. So okay, yeah. uh, what what happened last year was, um, yes, Michael Stephenson did um, Valentine's Day. And the reason I did that is because it's Valentine's Day. Yeah. So it's sort of a built-in thing. And then we did Anthony Wanzi's trio there one night. And it did okay. It wasn't great, but it did okay. Um, you know, it did okay. So 
those kinds of things you have to be careful of. So again, every situation is different. Can you do too many local gigs and get overexposed? The answer, I think, is yes, you can. But again, that comes with, do you want to play? Like, you know what I like to do, Will? Like, I like to do, like, Hank Mobley tributes. Like, am I going to do seven Hank Mobley tributes in two months at various venues across the city? No, of course not. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I'm going to do my organ band one, I'm going to do Nightcrawlers one weekend, which is a band I co-lead. Then I'm going to do my quartet at another place. Then I'm going to do my trio at another place. But if you're, if you're touring the same band and the same music in the same city, yeah, of course you can be overexposed. Yeah. That said, I mean, if if you're putting out an album, you've probably got some latitude like in that album release period to go for it a little bit and just see what you could do, right? Because, yep. hey, if you're going to do that, that would be the time. Yep, absolutely. And again, there's ways around, you know, like I remember we had Harold Mayburn in town, may he rest in peace, and we had mm. a whole bunch of gigs. We had Frankie's, a bunch of stuff. I think I, I did saw some- him at Cap and then at Frankie's. Yeah, and then we did something at the Italian Cultural Center, and I was like, ooh, I'm feeling a little bad about this because I didn't want it to hurt Frankie's. So I got Brad Turner to come to the Italian Cultural Center, and we did the music of Hank Mobley's... Uh, 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 yeah, Hank Mobley's dipping, and that was that, right? So we did that. A bunch of people came to that, and then when they came to Frankie's, I ended up having Brad Turner come down one of the nights. But we did the regular Mayburn, you know, repertoire that I had been doing with him, and that worked out fine. It 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 can work. It just again, every situation is different, so it's hard to give a blanket answer. Um, but yeah. I do I do think you need to be careful, and I do think you also need to not upset the venue owners. Yeah. And I guess it's on, you know, if we're really thinking about like somebody who was trying to book, like, like here's an amount that is maybe kind of on the borderline, uh, but it might also be okay, depending on how spaced out they are. Like say they wanted to play like four times, like in the span of like two months, like a couple times per month at like relatively similar venues. Like that could be totally fine. I'm sure yeah, like I, if I just look through the gig list. I, I, I see people who play that often, you know, and especially if you're putting out an album, that's probably fine. But let's say yep. you played like four times in like almost a month, like almost every week, right? Um, there's ways that, you know, you can alter the concept to change kind of who who you yeah. want to bring to that or to suit the venue um, a little bit. Like not alter your concept, but alter what you're going to put the emphasis on or like the kind of hook of of what you're presenting. Maybe bring in a certain guest like you were saying you did or maybe like you play some swinging music but you also play some like fusion or kind of more rock influence stuff like you could play at one venue and you could swing all day and then you could play another venue you could play like the more rock fusion stuff let's take me let's take my band piano bass drums tenor saxophone okay so what venues are where can i let's say i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do a tour of the lower mainland okay can play at frankie's there's a piano there where else can i play Pats, Pats. We've already decided that Pats is, um, Pats is not really a big competitor. Well, they're closed, anyways. But you can and play Tyrant. Yeah, but Tyrant has a piano. Yeah. I don't think my crowd's really going to go there. I don't think I'm Tyrant material. Although I'd love to play there. But you can. I can. Um, St. Andrews Wesley. Yeah. I mean, it's a church. It's. I mean, it's not. That's a whole different concept. So Guilt and Company, I'm going to have to bring a Rhodes or an electric keyboard and people are going to immediately go, oh no, I want the real jazz club, real piano vibe and they're going to go to Frankie's. Shadbolt, we've already discussed that a little bit. Like that won't really work. K-Meek or something in K-Meek or Cap are reserved for sort of bigger type shows, but I guess I could do a smaller show somewhere. So, like, really, where are you going to play where you can actually do the exact same thing that you're doing at Frankie's? Right. It's not a lot. So maybe you play at Guilt and you do Rhodes and you do something a little funkier or you switch the material up or, you know, so, I mean, in some ways I'm contradicting myself because, watch, people are going to listen to this and then they're going to be, like, booking six gigs in the course of three weeks at Frankie's and all over Vancouver and I'm going to be like, wait a minute, what are you doing? But Okay, so what about this, though? What if you had a sax, bass, drums, cordless trio? Yep, so that's, yeah, so then I think it becomes about, well, what are the venues? Second floor, 
Tyrant Maybe, Frankie's Late Show, <laughs> Tangent I mean, Cafe. I, no, I mean, I'll book, I'll book. I, Tangent's also not a competitor because the, Tangent is a hang. Tangent yeah. is not a play. You have the the 12 people that go there and are digging the music. The young people like it because essentially it's free. That's a hang and that's a commercial drive hang that lives on commercial drive. Sometimes, like when I play there, my people will come. But it's, you know, so again, it becomes about, well, what are the venues? If there's three jazz clubs in town, which there are not, then maybe it's an issue. But uh, like m- Frankie's people are not really going to go to Guilt and Company. Yeah. You know, like it's I remember funny that you say about Tangent and your people, uh, because, yeah, I've I know that you've played there a couple times and Tangent is really kind of my home base. Like I'm of the generation like yep. with David Blake and those guys. So it's it's the venue I've been to the most. Um, I mean, I went to the cellar a lot and I've been to Frankie's a bunch. And if you add those up, maybe it's close. But Tangent is like the one that I identify with. And like, to be honest, uh, I, have, I, I haven't I have gone to hear you. I haven't come out to hear you at the, at the Tangent. Right, at because Tangent, like, yeah. it's not the right vibe. Like I would, I, would go yeah. hear, <laughs> I would go hear you at Frankie's. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny. And so people have their... People have their places and people have their conceptions about where that person, where I'll go hear that person. So I just think as long as you're cognizant of it, you know, like another example is we did with Champion, we did the Fort Langley Jazz Festival. We did two nights at Frankie's and we did a house concert. Yeah. And with the exception of Fort Langley, everything was attended very well. So it's just different concept, different vibe. Like I would like to do, I know when Dave was still booking uh, Water Street, second floor Gastown, we were talking about trying to utilize that space more and say, well, look, like if we've got Peter Bernstein in town already, maybe you guys can do like a two guitar thing at Gastown, pack it, and then he comes to Frankie's and does whatever it is that he's doing at Frankie's. That I don't think there's a problem with. Um, Now, we're utilizing special guests, of course, but I just, in general, I think you have to be really just cognizant of what you're doing, where you're doing it, and how it might affect other venues. And what actually bugs me as a presenter more than anything is people don't ask me, they just do it. People don't ask you what? They don't say like, hey, are you okay if we do this other gig? And I'm like, oh, I and see. sometimes they ask me, I'm like, no, I'm not okay. Like, first of all, you asked me for a raise for this gig and then you're going to go down and do that other gig because why again? Like I'm guaranteeing you more money than any club will guarantee in the city. I'm giving you a prime performance opportunity. And then you're going to go down the street and play for way less and way longer. Like, no, I'm, that doesn't sit well with me. I understand you need to make more money and you will be out here, but you know, there's got, but every situation is different. So. Interesting. That's a really good point because I don't think a lot of, um, people who are learning how to do this would think to do that i think they would be afraid to ask that because they're afraid of what could go wrong but you saying that you appreciate it is really interesting and i'm i'm gonna think about that personally and if i am in that situation now that i know you've said that i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna ask but to be honest i wouldn't have uh i don't know if i would have uh thought to do that just up till now so yeah i'm gonna think about that yep huh yep yeah but i mean i think the subtext behind this that I like is that you have a healthy attitude towards competition and like what you could think of as competition. I think that's really important because you're aware of these other venues, but you don't feel like they're taking away from what you're doing. And that's important because if you did, it could be really, really frustrating, right? But you, yeah. you're you aware of the differences between the places. It means that you can get on with what you're doing and not be worried about what they're doing because you feel like, oh, they're doing something that's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was curious also, because we're talking about attendance, that seems to have been the theme that has developed here, other than fear. We've been talking a lot about fears that you have when you're booking gigs, and we're talking mm-hmm. about um, attendance and draw and the, the different concerns around that locally. Um, I, I don't have some, nobody gave this to me as a firm question, but we, I had a conversation about this, and it's something that I became aware of 10 years ago when I was a student. Um, and it's an experience that I had, and I want to know what you think about this from the presenter's side, because it, at least in our generation, I don't know to what extent this still happens, but a lot of my friends and I 
we often felt that um, the teachers that we had at CAP and the people who were presenting, they put a lot of effort into coming up with things like master classes or, you know, you would have like a, a workshop during the day at the cellar back in the day with an artist or, you know, these kind of extracurricular things that are, that are aimed to, to bring students in to learn from a master or learn from an expert. Uh, or if there's a guest coming to town, then our teachers and mentors would really emphasize the importance of going out to go see this guest or mm -hmm. the importance of taking that opportunity that's being granted to you to go and learn from that person. Now, that's all wonderful. I'm really grateful that that was being done and I, I took advantage of that as much as I could. I remember I even met uh, the great bass player John Weber and I got to take a lesson with him and meet him nice. and everything too. Um, one of the first times I got to hear him at Frankie's and that was phenomenal. Oh. Um, other people that you brought in, you know, when there were those kind of opportunities, I enjoyed those. That said, the thing is, uh, it was a memorable recurring thing for us that uh, after those things would happen, um, our teachers, uh, you, would, you would get the sense that the, the teachers, the, the faculty, the presenters kind of felt disappointed about how few people would end up going to some of these things. And it, it was almost like an exasperation that we could sense about it, like them talking to us like, what do we have to do to get you out to these things? And we didn't know, we didn't know what to do about that because I, I and obviously we're not able. To, no individual person is able to go to hundred percent of the things, but I think we, of course, we appreciated that those were available, and many of us did try and come out to those things. But at the end of the day, we really noticed this kind of exasperated feeling of um, the teachers trying to set up these opportunities, not very many people coming to them, and them kind of expressing this exasperation about it. Any thoughts on this? Oh boy. Wow. Um, yeah, I have thoughts and I, I think you're correct. Um, I'll try to keep my thoughts concise. <laughs> I think there's a shift that happened and I'm probably partly responsible for it, but there was a shift that happened where the hierarchy of where you stand in the local community or the local scene got jumbled. And when I was growing up, you know, and I would be, I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing I'm 20 years older than, what are you, 25? I'm 27. 27. So I'm, yeah, I'm 20 years older than you. It was a very clear, very clear delineation of how you made it and what you did and, you know, with the coming on of the internet and social media, I think that line got very blurred. And, I, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I remember Amanda Tosoff and Morgan Childs when they lived here who were and are great musicians, but even back then they were great. They came to me and asked me for a gig, and it was two days after New Year's. It's just the way the, the schedule fell. Like New Year's was on a Wednesday, you know, so Thursday was off, uh, Tuesday, and then Wednesday was off, and then Thursday. It's like, we got to open again because it's Thursday. So is this at the cellar? Yeah, it's at the cellar. I said, I'll give you a door gig. And they said, oh, you can't guarantee us uh, any money? And uh, I'm like, no, it's a door gig. I'm sorry. Well, we brought 90 people through the door that night at 10 bucks. I wrote them a check for $900. Woo! <laughs> now this is this is a long this is sort of I said I was going to be concise but they deserved every penny of that $900. They were great players um who sounded great and put on a great show and they deserved it. Um but they were young. They were young. They hadn't really paid many dues yet, you know. Um and it was fine because they could play. But it, and I'm not saying they took advantage of this, but I think there's a lot of younger players who have a lot more available to them now to learn. Um, they get good really fast, and all of a sudden, they're contemporaries of me and contemporaries of Steve Collisette and contemporaries of Oliver Gannon. They're no longer student mentor. There's none of that. So there's a saying, well, I don't really need to go hear clinics because I'm already a bad dude playing gigs and, you know, Blah, 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 blah. Like, why would I go to that clinic? Like, I'm already a cat on the scene. So that's that's one thing. Um, 
And like I said, I contributed to that because I got some young people to start playing. But do you understand what I mean? Like these people have sort of parachuted up much quicker than when I was growing up. And they've become really good. You know, like Julian, who I mentioned, and David Caballero was only in his like third year playing bass. And I'm like, who are these people? Like, and how are they getting so good so fast? And so there's that. But the other thing, there were o- there's only a handful of people that really care in the program. So, and that's no different when I was there than it is now. You have 150 music students at CAP or however many there are, and there's only 15 of them that care. And and I don't, I, I'm not insulting the ones that don't care. I'm not saying that. It's just, they're like, they're kind of in there doing music, but they don't really know. And they don't really care about Lewis Hayes. They don't really care about Mayburn. Like they're just kind of there toiling away. There's only 10 to 15 really serious students that are taking this on as it's as if it's their whole life. And it was like that when I was in school too, but there were only seven of us. And those are the same seven that you saw everywhere, at every clinic, at everything. Now, you know, you have the internet. So really I'm going to go to a clinic with Mayburn when I can just go to YouTube and watch the Miles Davis Quintet for three hours perform a show in 1967. Like, I'll bring Jeremy Pelt to a clinic at Frankie's and there'll be seven people there. And I'm like, man, even if you're not a trumpet player, do you realize what this guy has done, who he's played with, where he's been? Even if you want to ask him about how it is traveling to Paris twice a year and like anything, and you get seven people there. And it's like, really? And you say you're taking this music seriously? And you're so I feel the same frustration as the teachers. However, you know, I think the internet doesn't help. There's a whole lot of entitlement. Um, and there's that whole thing about these young musicians are now our contemporaries. You know, we're on the same level. And look, man, some of them play better. Like Julian Brakowski's playing more stuff than I've ever played. But him in particular has a very healthy respect for people that have been around longer than him. It's not about, oh, Corey plays better or worse. Or, it's about, I've been around. And there's a healthy respect for that. Um, you know, and so the one, another one that comes to mind is Atlee King. Like this man, this kid plays his ass off again, probably played more, got more technique than me. I mean, I know we play different instruments, but you know, there's a respect for people who have done it longer than him. It's not even about, you should revere me because I'm Corey Weeds. That's not it. I'm just saying I've lived a longer life than you. So I probably dealt with more than you on the music scene. Like maybe you've, maybe somebody, I've been pretty lucky in my life to not have to deal with a lot of uh, trauma or tragedy. So I'm not talking about that, but I've, I've lived, you know, I have a mortgage, I have a family, I'm fighting it out in the jazz world. I just, I know more than you. It doesn't mean I'm better than you. It just means that I have some knowledge that you don't have yet. And that line has been blurred. Very much that line has been blurred. And I don't know how to get it back, but I really feel like that's that's the that's a big problem. Interesting. You know? Yeah, I I wouldn't have called the the part of it where the students feel like they don't have to go because uh, they feel like they they don't need to learn anything. That would have surprised me, but I guess the one sense where I could imagine that is that you feel like you just have access to all the educational resources online that you would want, and so therefore, if you're like hankering for educational resources like that's what you're going to think of and that's what you're going to do and so maybe that thing wouldn't be on your radar but i guess i'm i'm lucky that i wasn't around really any uh peers that you know i i haven't had any experiences with peers who have acted that way and it would have been pretty upsetting you know if if i was so yeah that's, that's and I, look there is a, a handful of people who are going to take this seriously enough moving forward. So I think maybe having 70 people at a Jeremy Pelt clinic, we're talking about expectation again, the expectation of that is way too high. So I know one thing at the Fraser McPherson thing that we're toying with and messing around with is what's more important, impact or attendance? Care about attendance? Impact is important. We've got um, Terrell Stafford is going to be in town and Michael Weiss is going to be in town as a great pianist. So do we get six trumpeters from high school and six trumpeters from college and say, 
you, free clinic, 12 people with Terrell Stafford, and have it be impactful and say to everybody else, you can come, but you can't participate. You can watch, but you can't participate. I don't know how you would... There, I mean, there's so many flaws in my theory, but I don't know how you would select... We're just riffing. Um, We're just thinking of things. We're just riffing. When Michael Weiss is in town, a basic improvisation clinic. Okay, we're going to take six people on each instrument, one on each instrument, and say, you're going to get three hours for free with Michael Weiss. Is that more important that those six people got that kind of advice, or is it more important to have 50 students sitting in there who are too scared to ask a question? Or who are like, oh, Michael Weiss, I don't know who he is. Well... Michael Weiss is a bad dude who's played with a lot of bad people. And, you know, so huh. I think it's about impact. So if John Weber comes to town and two people take a lesson with him and you're forever changed, okay, there are only six people at his clinic, but he changed your life. And I think sometimes with jazz, you need to break it down and say, we're, we're changing lives one person at a time, man. And... So that's important to me if, if somebody comes here and there was some impact. So I think there needs to be less measuring about how many people attended the clinic. I would rather be like, great, 50 people attended the clinic. Nobody was touched by it and nobody was impacted by it. Well, what's the point? You know, it's just window dressing like, hey, we did 50. But no, we took three students and they got three hours with one of the greatest whoever in the world. And they walked away with smiles on their faces and like super inspired. So, you know, people will come up to me like Ilhan and um, uh, Julian Burkowski was rehearsing today said. Oh, I can't remember who he referenced, but he's like, oh, yeah, you brought this guy and I got to hang out with him. And I was like, I didn't even know that. I didn't okay. know you took a lesson with John Weber. And so to me, it's like, OK. Good, that stuff did pay off. I don't care about the six people at the clinic, but you took a lesson with John Weber, who I think is is criminally, criminally underrated. Great. So there was some impact. So I think you have to maybe, again, expectation. You have to keep your expectations realistic as to what uh, what you're trying to accomplish by having a, a, a clinic that's not... Like, kids have other things to do. They got exams. They're lazy. They don't want to come. Like one one thing I would like to do. I got into this a little bit because I don't know if you remember, but I did get myself into a little trouble on Facebook several years ago. You know, condemning young kids, saying you know you're all lazy and you don't know what you're doing. It did lead to some good dialogue, and I wish I could remember a lot of what was said. But what I would really like is to call all the people that I think should have been at the clinic and said, "Why didn't you come? I need to know." You know, oh, I'm working. Do you know what rent is in Vancouver? It's a billion dollars a month and I got to work. Okay. If I could get a better idea around that, so I feel like it's not laziness or entitlement, I would feel like a lot better. And yeah. I, I do think, I do think we, and I'm guilty of this. I jump on young people. I'm raising two young people. You know, I, I'm, I'm hard on them and I jump on them quickly, but there are factors, work, you know, uh, a lot of things that, that are, but. I also know that when I was young, I used to take the bus from Burnaby, and this was like when Sky, when there was no 99B line, my dad would drop me at, at my dad would drop me at the bus loop. I would bus all the way on the number nine to Alma Street to sit and have my dessert to listen to Fraser McPherson or George Robert or Campbell Riga. But I'm rare. I'm one of those seven people that did that. You know, and I don't think that's really changed. There's more music students, so maybe there's 10 people. But when I look around the club and I see what's happening at late night, I see Todd Stewart there all the time supporting his friends. I see Arvind. You know, I see all those. I see Fevin. I see all these people coming out to support and be a part of the scene and hang out. It's like, okay, you know, okay, you guys, you get it. But it's a handful. And I think it's always going to be a handful. So... So great to to sum it up about the impact thing, about focusing on impact instead of attendance, because that goes back to, you know, why is everybody fussing about how many people you expect to draw? Maybe yeah. maybe you're missing the real important thing, which is how impactful is it going to be? That's going to yeah. be driven by the music. That's what's going to satisfy the presenter is if you produce an impactful performance and you bring it there. And that's what people are going to remember, right? And it's the same thing with the clinic. It's like, I remember when I went into the hotel room 
with John Weber and he counted off end of a beautiful friendship and I listened to what his bass sounded like. I can't remember um, who you brought him out with. You, you've probably brought him out with Peter Bernstein a couple of times, right? But I don't think it was at Frankie's, was it? Was that the cellar? You said Frankie's before. No, no, no. Yeah, you're right. It was the cellar. Yeah. I can't remember. It was like 2013 or 14, something like that. Yeah, it was. I can't even the, remember. It was like the very okay. last days of the cellar, I'm pretty sure, was was when this took place. But, you know, that's an impact. And yep. if you're focusing too much on how many people showed up, just the raw numbers of it, you know, you're going to miss the impact. Exactly. And impact takes like, it takes effort to actually measure the impact. Like it's not going to be an exact science, yeah. but it's when you when you are able to notice it that's the real stuff. Like that's, that's yeah. how, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great place to wrap it up. That brings together all these thoughts, um, about fear and booking gigs and the results and how we all get along together because of it. Corey, thanks again for a great episode too. I hope you enjoy the month of September here as we ease out of summer and I'll talk to you soon then. Thanks. Will. Thanks.